There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Alan Johnson, one of the greatest politicians this country has ever produced, one of the most popular. And there's a reason for that, as you will find out as you listen to this. He's a phenomenal man. And just the warmth, as well as the searing political analysis and his wit, just the warmth of the man comes through so much. He's just a great person to spend time with. And that really, really shines through. Before I come on to Alan, um, I can announce a couple of guests uh, for forthcoming shows. So as you know, uh, if you listen to the show regularly, I'm going to the Edinburgh Festival. You can buy tickets for my stand-up show uh, on the link that I've put in the show notes or just go to mattford.com. I'm on every night from the 3rd to the 28th of August. And as well as that, I'm doing three political party specials. And the tickets for these, I think the Gordon Brown one is all but sold out. So if you want to come to that, be quick. That's on the 7th of August at the McEwen Hall. Then on the 15th of August, I'm interviewing Anna Sawa. And on the 22nd of August, Joanna Cherry. Tickets for all those are going very quickly, but I think the Gordon Brown one is all but sold out. Um, I've put a link where you can buy tickets for that in the blurb in the show notes. And then, obviously, we return to the Duchess Theatre uh, for the autumn-winter run. And guests for that include, and one of these is a new name, on the 3rd of October, Mick Lynch, General Secretary of the RMT, Arguably the biggest TV star of the year. Um, he has outwitted Piers Morgan, Kay Burley, Chris Phil, pretty much everyone on TV. He's been a real star. That is going to be a very special night. That's on the 3rd of October. On the 17th of October, I'm joined by Matt Hancock. And on the 5th of December, Rachel Reeves. Obviously a lot more dates there um, that I'm very close to being able to announce. But tickets for all those at mattford.com or go to the NIMAX website where you can buy tickets for all political party shows. So on with today's show. Obviously, this is happening at the same time as the Conservative Leadership Contest. And this was recorded on the night of the first televised debate between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. So, of course, that really dominated the early proceedings. very special time for our country, the shittest Prime Minister in our history. He's on his way out and now the Tory party will choose the second shittest Prime Minister in our history. So I'm going to put each name to you and give me a cheer. No matter who, which party you support, who you think you would rather see as Prime Minister. So give me a cheer if you'd like to see Rishi Sunak. Okay, that's the sexist in the room. And uh, give me a cheer if you'd like to see Liz Truss. Okay, that's the racists in the room. So, uh, both, uh, most people... I beg your pardon? And she's really shit. She's really shit. Well, um, I don't... Previously, I'd have said you were a, you know, a Labour supporter, but given the way this contest is going, I presume you're a Tory MP. <laughs> the blue-on-blue blue action is absolutely incredible. Of course, most people, there wasn't a don't-know option. If you didn't cheer for either, give me a cheer. Yay! Okay, the people have spoken. So, oh, actually, there is a third option, isn't there? Give me a cheer for Keir Starmer. Yay! 
Okay, so actually, Keir Starmer, if tonight's audience is anything to go by, is heading for a three-figure landslide at the next general election. Uh, but the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is on his way out, and he signed off. I always think it's a really good pub quiz question. What were Prime Minister's final words at the dispatch box? Tony Blair's, of course, the greatest. That is that. The end. Uh, and no Prime Minister has really sort of managed to get that back. And Boris Johnson went for slightly similar. He said, hasta uh, la vista, baby. Um, which, sadly, is sort of quite comical. But you just think, obviously, he's quoting the Terminator. Um, <laughs> Someone who actually, I think, had more respect for humanity than, uh, than Boris Johnson. Showed more dignity towards his fellow man. I mean, imagine Boris would have been in the Terminator. We send Skynet £350 million a year and they can't even fund our frontline war against the machines. Uh, well, who is John Connor? Where is John Connor? And, and does he have an older sister? Uh, that's all I want to know. Um, no, no, no. I, I did restore the whip to the T-1000. Uh, but no, 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 no. The T-1000 promised me uh, that it would behave, uh, and I'm as shocked as anyone else that it continued to slaughter people. Uh, that's it. That's it. I, I think he's a great candidate in this by-election, uh, and I will stand by it. Uh, of course, if he was going to quote any um, Arnie film, really, it should have been Predator, given his behaviour, but uh, <laughs> he, went, he went for the Terminator instead. Uh, yeah, I love it when, you know, YouGov and these polling companies now do word clouds associated with politicians, and they did one the other day, on the day that he announced he was going. What word do you most associate with Boris Johnson? Obviously, right in the middle, in that big hundred font, there's loads of small words around the middle, and then right in the middle, just in block capitals, liar. <laughs> and you think, that's great, but they definitely filter out the swear words. There's no way. <laughs> Actually, it's very difficult for us to say this on the Today programme, Nick, but the top three answers were shagger, bastard and cunt. Um, and they were just from his own backbenchers, but after that, liar was a distant fourth. Um, Liz Truss, let's be honest, is the favourite to win. Uh, Liz Truss is, if you're a betting person, you put money on Liz Truss to be the next Prime Minister. I think we have to deal with this as a country. She's weird. <laughs> and we have to accept this. Uh, there's something very, very odd about her. In that, in that sort of indefinable oddness, where, you know... If, you were, if you went to a diner in the middle of nowhere and she served you, you'd go back to your table and say, I've never said this before in my life, but we need to leave now. <laughs> I know it's the sort of things that happen in films, but this just getting a vibe that isn't... My evolutionary senses are telling me we need to leave. And she's the sort of person to go, you can drive as fast as you like. I'll still catch up with you. <laughs> You know those films where you run and the zombie walks and somehow they catch you? That's the sort of vibe I get off Liz Truss. And the fact that she's dressing up as Thatcher, they're both trying to be the heir to Thatcher. Liz Truss going one step further. I mean, obviously, Rishi can't. It's harder for Rishi to dress up as Margaret Thatcher. He would never buy clothes that cheap. Um, but Liz Truss literally, like, what the fuck? The fact that it works as well that Tory members go, this is what we want, yes. Dress up as a dead woman, yeah. <laughs> Imagine if Keir Starmer in that final leaders debate against Rebecca Long-Bailey had come along with a stick-on moustache and gone, I've come dressed as the rotting corpse of Clement Attlee. <laughs> um, what's mad about this, I'm sure you've read some of these pieces and seen perhaps the footage of her at the Lib Dem conference when she was a, a, a teenager, was that she started off as this really liberal, remain a Lib Dem, and now she's like, send everyone to Africa and it further if possible, and let's find a more despotic regime on the planet to really teach these people who want a better life a left. You're like, what the fuck happened in the Lib Dems that she has reacted so bad? And you think about this. Nick Clegg went and worked for Mark Zuckerberg. Liz Truss is now trying to deport as many as people as possible from Africa. The Lib Dems, we can only conclude, have basically become a feeder academy for the far right. <laughs> 
I wouldn't be surprised if I found a photo tomorrow of Tommy Robinson in his youth wearing socks and sandals. <laughs> Jacob Reese Mogg, by the way. Jacob Reese Mogg and the Dean Doris, obviously, supporting Liz Truss because they just want to kill Rishi for what he did to Boris. And uh, Jacob Reese Mogg has been briefing against him so much, he said, uh, Oh, well, Rishi Sunak uh, is a socialist. I think, come on, mate. I mean, he went to Winchester College in Oxford. He's nowhere near privileged enough to be a socialist. <laughs> like, the guy's a scrubber compared to most socialists I've met. But um, <laughs> there was a great clip, I don't know if you saw the Channel 4 debate, where they talk about Rishi Sunak's um, financial affairs. And you know when someone has tried to figure out the argument that will sound best, but they haven't found the best words? And he said, I am a completely normal UK taxpayer. <laughs> Which no one said ever. Like, that is like, they've, what they've obviously said is, Rishi, you need to make this sound normal. But normal never involves using the word normal. I, there's nothing, I love this country. Of course I love football. There's nothing more than I love than watching a normal game of football with a normal pint in a normal pub with my normal racist mates. It's the best way. I put a normal flare at my normal ass every time we get to a normal final and I'll do it again on Sunday. He's got that slight, there is a slight, you almost feel for him in a way, Rishi Sunak. There's that slight awkwardness he's got where he's sort of mega privileged, but he's got that weird sort of nervous, I think the fact that he's slightly cross-eyed as well, you sort of feel for him. That, he's got that, he looks like at any moment he's going to go, sorry, Sophie, can I just pause the debate? I, I think I've weed my pants. <laughs> can I get to the toilet? It'd be super great if I could just go and do a normal wee in a normal toilet. That'd be lovely, thank you. Sort of feel for him a little bit, but um, he has put out a video. I don't know if you've seen the video today he's put out on immigration. It's one of the most terrifying videos I've ever seen. Like, it starts off with, like, it's like a black room, and it's, you know that sort of sinister music, like... <laughs> it's like the start of a Terminator film. Like, ching, 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 ching. And it's just like a little portable telly with news reports about immigrants in the channel. And it says from 297 people coming into the country in 2018 to 29,000 last year. I think it was, psh, cuts to a clip of Nigel Farage going, the problem is completely out of control. And you're like, fucking hell. Like, <laughs> you're like, what? Where is this going? Then it cuts to Rishi Sunak. And he goes, my first priority is to tackle the emergency of the NHS backlog emergency. Like, what? Has this got anything to do with what you've just shown me? It'd be like, it's such a, an incongruous thing from like this horror film about what immigrants are going to do to our country. Is that Rishi Sunak talking about the NHS? It'd be like, it'd be like a Labour Party political broadcast starting off with hardcore pornography and then cutting to Keir Starmer going, my first priority is education. <laughs> why, why have you even started with that? The fuck? And also the fact that he uses emergency twice. My first priority is the emergency of the NHS backlog emergency. He's so bad at like, there's a big emergency and a backlog emergency and I will tackle that emergency, that normal emergency in the NHS. <laughs> I promise I will tackle. But the video is absolutely terrible, but it's completely as schizophrenic as it sounds. On the one hand, he's going, loads of people are coming here and they're fucking dangerous. And then on the other hand, he's going, but some of them are okay, like my mum. And you're like, this is the strangest bit of propaganda I've ever seen. Basically him going, we are a welcoming country with open arms. It welcomed my mum, and I want it to continue to. People just like my mum, actually just my mum. <laughs> Dominic Raab is the man who introduces him on some of these videos, desperate. I mean, Dominic Raab has that sort of panicked look of a man who has backed the wrong horse. And he sort of knows, he sort of sees that he's not gonna be as major a player in the next cabinet as he is this one. But there's a terrifying line, he goes, Rishi is a man who gets things done. 
And, oh, that's it. He goes, Rishi is a man that makes things happen. You're like, yeah, the things he makes happen are inflation and massive fraud. I don't think this is... Uh, <laughs> I don't, think this is a particular, I don't think you should talk about the things that he's actively created, Dominic. I don't think it's his strongest argument. But um, <laughs> he, he also says some of the attack lines they're using against Labour, like, I think that's part of the problem the Tories have, is not only are they tearing each other to shreds and writing Labour's election broadcasts and leaflets for them, on the, they're still attacking Labour like it's the Corbyn years. You're like, what are you doing? There's one line where Dominic Robb says, Rishi is the only person who can defeat a threat of a socialist government propped up by the Lib Dems and the SNP. Like, mate, that is, that is such an old attack line that the public don't believe. It's, so, it's like a mixture of 70s, 90s, and noughties attack line. He might as well have gone, Rishi is the only man who can stave off the threat of decimalisation against the backdrops of the moon landings and the launch of the Ford Mondeo. <laughs> But they're attacking Starmer on a number of fronts. The thing Keir Starmer gets attacked for more than anything now is whether he's boring or not. I've seen two interviews where people have said, are you boring? I'm not boring. Now, the problem is, how do you convince someone you're not boring? It's actually really hard. And I thought about this the other day. I think Cathy Newman says to him, all right, tell me something interesting about yourself. You're like, fuck, how would any of us answer that? I was thinking about this. Someone said to me, What's, tell me the most interesting thing about you. I don't know what I'd say. Well, like, um, we really like spicy Doritos and uh, football stickers. And all the things I would say would make me sound like a child. Like, well, I don't know, I'm a bit of a laugh, aren't I? Yeah, I go to the pub. Uh, I've got normal mates. I'm a normal UK taxpayer. You know, what, what would you actually say? It's a really horrible question to ask. The worst sorts of people are ones that, oh, I'm dead excited and I do skydiving. Fuck off. <laughs> you have to chuck yourself out of a plane because there's nothing else going on on the actual land you live on. That's a reflection of how boring you are, not how excited you are. I mean, what's he supposed to say? Yeah, smoke a bit of weed. Uh, play Xbox, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm involved in a fight club, actually. There's no good... Once you're asked what's interesting about you, you've lost that particular part of the debate, haven't you? I just don't think it... Also, people saying he's boring. Good! I would love a boring Prime Minister right now. I would kill. Do you know what I mean? I'd be like, oh, my God. And I don't think he is boring, but if he's more boring than this, fine by me. Like, I would sleep better knowing that just to be, Like, what's the point? People are going, well, I do get that actually you would redistribute wealth and opportunity across the United Kingdom. I get that you would probably secure the future of the Union. It would make us a more harmonious society, return us to a global world power, make us proud on the global stage, be far more active in repelling terrorism and economic development abroad. But can he juggle? <laughs> Yeah, that must be on. Oh, <laughs> look at that. Isn't that lovely? Alan, if you go off, I'll, come, I'll bring you okay. back. <laughs> so Liz Truss then, do you think she's... What's your political antenna tell you? Do you think she's going to be the next leader? Oh, she's so far ahead amongst the, you know, that small tranche of the electorate that will decide this. I mean, Sunak's the, Sunak's the grown-up in the room. It's looked to me right from the start. And I thought furlough was a remarkable thing for a Conservative Chancellor to do. Heavily influenced by the TUC, no one says that. I mean, he called the TUC in. And if you talk to Frances O'Grady, General Secretary of TUC, she'll tell you that furlough scheme was largely the TUC's plan. But all, all due respect to him for consulting the TUC. So hang on, Jacob Rees-Mogg was right. He is a socialist. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah it's not going to go down well for him, is it? Yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. So you respect him as a pragmatist? Yeah, yeah, as a, as a pragmatist and as in a field that looked 
increasingly weird and strange. <laughs> you know, it's like the bar scene from the first Star Wars uh, film <laughs> at times. Um, he, he sounded like a proper politician, you know, tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. And what? At, the, at this particular time, anyway? Why would you... Why would you and not just tax cuts. Liz Trust is saying she would borrow money now when inflation is soaring to pay for tax cuts now so that then we have a larger bill to pay off. Yeah. It very, doesn't, I mean, very uh, Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're both socialists, Alan. That's why yes, you don't that's like right. them. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> would you still describe yourself as a socialist? I wouldn't because the dictionary definition is, is public ownership of everything. But, you know, Clause 4 of the Labour Party Constitution, which you may remember, uh, says we are a democratic socialist party, uh, not a revolutionary socialist party. And, and that's been the battle in Labour right since it was formed. You know. And you used a big word there, we. So we, yeah. you're still a member? Did you leave at all? No, 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 no. My wife left, my son left. And, you know, I could see why, given what was happening. And I actually thought, I thought we were a busted flush. I thought we were finished. You know, on that terrible December night in 2019, when we were losing Bishop Auckland, Bolsover, you know, Sedgefield, oh, Grimsby, Scunthorpe, you know, I thought we were finished because they'd, the, the, the far left had got a grip on everything in terms of, you know, from the conference arrangements committee to some of the jobs that you used to do as an East Midlands organiser, not very well, but you, you know, we did it. I was going to say, we they were losing <laughs> seats long before. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I thought it would be, you know, it would take years for us to come, to come back. Keir Starmer was brave enough. He was my director of public prosecutions when I was Home Secretary, of course, so I knew him. And he'd done a proper job. I mean, that is a much more difficult job than most cabinet positions. Um, so he knows how to, how to conduct himself, he knows how to do a job, and he's done it, I think. When you look at us, 27 points behind when he was elected, to now, what, we're 12 points ahead, and people say, oh, you should be 28 points ahead. You know, give it a week. Given where we came back, <laughs> where we came from, yeah, he'll be there. So do you think that when he was Director of Public Prosecutions, did you have any sense that he was Labour or that he might one day stand for office? No, I think it was Ed Miliband who persuaded him so I'm talking about 2010. It was 2015 when he came in. Yes. And then he took that job uh, as Brexit, shadow Brexit minister. And I had a chat with him in my office. He came to my office to talk to me because I was in charge of Labour's campaign. Uh, and you know, we got 66% of our supporters voting to remain. Cameron only got 20% of his Tory supporters. So, but Keir said that he had laid down the law to, to his deal for getting a job is he would appoint his own people. He had a huge degree of um, uh, discretion, which wasn't surprising because Jeremy Corbyn just wasn't interested in the whole... I mean, he was a lever anyway, but he knew that the Labour Party was very much for Remain. So he just kind of ducked out of it. So he gave Keir the opportunity to make his name. And I suppose in the sense that he was a leading QC and his name was Keir. That's a bit of a clue, you know. If, <laughs> if you're christened Keir, there's not many Keirs around. It kind of has to be uh, after Keir Hardy. So I kind of suspected he was on the left. And his, because the first time I interviewed him in the Shadow Brexit section, I find him hugely impressive. 
So this sort of characterization of him since I found slightly strange. And obviously when people become leaders, often their behaviour can change and you can perhaps be a bit freer in a shadow cabinet role than you would be as leader of the opposition who could conceivably now become prime minister. So that puts different pressures on you as a person. But I mean, he plays five-a-side football. I've never thought that he's a boring guy. And again, the problem well, is, once you start saying he's sort of boring or not, you, yeah. that it, you sound like you're trying to justify someone. But I, I just I found out in the interval that you're a musician, that you play the piano. Keir is such a good musician. He went to a conservatory in, in London. That's a music college. Uh, <laughs> um, and he played in a band with uh, the guy who's the bass, who was the bass guitarist in the House Martins. And Cook, Cook. Oh yeah, Fat Boy Slim. Fat Boy Slim. He played in a band with Fat Boy Slim. Uh, is a very good musician. I mean, he was mainly a clarinetist, and a, he keeps all that very quiet. But um, some of the cases he took up as a leading QC, whether they were left or right, he defended a, a soldier in Northern Ireland that was getting cast, eighteen-year-old who'd shot someone who'd gone through a through a checkpoint. Uh, and, you know, he defended him, which would be seen as defending someone, you know, probably the left wouldn't have touched it. Uh, the McDonald's, the two uh, McDonald's workers, he represented them very well, very well, pro bono for years, by the way. I mean, he's got such an interesting background. It's very difficult to make him sound and look boring. Um, so, but maybe more of that will come out closer to the time. He's a bit like Gordon in the sense that Gordon could make these wonderful speeches on the platform, but was quite awkward in interviews, wasn't he? And quite awkward as you went round. I mean, I remember when I was made, so Tony went, the standing oh. ovation and all that, yeah. Gordon came in and no one would have beaten Gordon and no one should have beaten Gordon given his role in the international banking crisis. I mean, he led the world in that, but anyway, he, he appointed me health secretary on the Wednesday night when Tony had gone. I was education secretary. He made me health secretary. And then on Saturday, we visited a hospital, Kingston Hospital. And I had to go into 10 Downing Street to meet him early that morning, 7.30. And the first thing I noticed is he'd actually got rid of the sofa. You know, Tony was accused of sofa government, which basically meant that occasionally he'd have a chat with people just like this, <laughs> rather than everything being done around the cabinet table with the cabinet secretary there. I mean, you know nonsense to kind of criticise. It was a more relaxed form of government. Gordon had taken an axe to the sofa. I mean, this was only <laughs> Wednesday to Saturday, the sofa had gone. The next thing, I'm sitting in, his, in the car to go to Kingston on, two of us are in the back seat on the way to the hospital, and I thought, this is taking a while. Kingston upon Thames, we should be there in a, with all the outriders. Then I noticed there wasn't any outriders. This is absolutely true. There were no motorcyclists. And we were stuck in traffic. We were stuck in traffic just going around Parliament Square. <laughs> and I said to Gordon, what have you done with all the... Oh, I can't be doing with that. He said, I can't be doing with that. I've got rid of them. I mean, eventually, the security services said, hang on, mate, it's not your decision. <laughs> you know, if you're the Prime Minister stuck in traffic, you are a sitting target. So that's another bit of Gordon. Then we get to the hospital at Kingston-upon-Thames, and when you went anywhere with Tony, it was like being a, with a rock star. Tony loved it. Have a selfie with me and all this. Having a People loved it as smiling well. Smiling, chatting. They loved it. Loved it. You go around a supermarket, go anywhere with Tony. I went around supermarkets with him actually when I was at the DTI. Um, but 
with Gordon, it was very awkward, and all he could do was go up to people, there was all these nurses and doctors, go up to people and say, thank you for all you do, thank you for all you do, thank you for all you do. And in the end, he was, no kidding, thank you for all you do. And this person said, Gordon, I'm from 10 Downing Street, I came with you. <laughs> I'm part of your stuff. Absolutely, no, uh, no word of a lie. Anyway, here's another side of Gordon. This woman breaks through this heavily choreographed visit. You know, we've got security people, we've got doctors, senior cl clinicians, a new prime minister has just come, Kingston Hospital. And this woman was determined to kind of break through and talk to the prime minister. And she succeeded, and her mother had just died. In, in the most appalling kind of conditions. I mean, she was going to die anyway. She, um, you know, I mean, th this was now 2007, so the NHS was really on the up. But we didn't have end-of-life care right. People were stuck in a, instead of being sent home and some palliative care there, her mother had been stuck in a room with all these tubes coming out of her, the most, you know, horrible, uh, inelegant, way to kind of spend your last hours and she told Gordon this and he was straight onto it as soon as we were in the car on the way back we'd mapped out a plan how to deal with and how to get end of life care improved and that was the two sides of Gordon you know he was but you know he I don't think he ever enjoyed being prime minister Tony enjoyed it I don't think Theresa May enjoyed it I think Cameron enjoyed it uh, Boris Johnson will just draw a veil over. <laughs> enjoyed some of the extracurricular activities. Maybe. Do you think Keir Starmer's enjoying being, trying to become Prime Minister? Who would enjoy being leader of the opposition? I mean, it's the most god-awful job in the world. You know, as, as once again, to quote Tony Blair, uh, when you're leader of the opposition, you wake up every morning and think, what am I going to say? When you're in government, you wake up and think, what am I going to do? Um, and... And you're on a hide into nothing as leader of the opposition. No matter what party you're in, uh, you know, William Hague, Jesus, what a terrible time he had, and then all the ones coming after him, uh, if there's a moderately successful prime minister. So I, 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 think, um, I think for Gordon it was a bit of a torture. Um, and with Keir now, do you talk to him much? No, 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 not at all. He's very busy. Yeah, no, but do you not... You're obviously like... You're sort of Brian Clough figure. You're like the greatest, <laughs> greatest manager the country never, England never had. Are you not tempted to just occasionally sort of send the odd message saying, "Why don't you just try this?" You know, <laughs> not play three in midfield, but you know, uh, <laughs> whatever it is with the front bench or. The only time I ever sent him a message was when um, it was kind of in the. I, I didn't leave till 2017, so he was Brexit shadow minister. And my message to Keir was, we ought to support Theresa May's deal. Theresa May's deal was about as soft as Brexit as you could get. We stayed in the single market. We stayed in the European Medicines Agency. We stayed part of all these European bodies. We solved the Northern Ireland problem by having the whole of uh, the UK in uh, the single market. So you wouldn't have had to have a barrier there. And think what it would have done to the Tories if that had gone through with Labour votes, I mean, it would have, on a purely kind of <laughs> mischievous level, it would have really upset them. And, you know, would that we could have that deal now. It was a reasonable, it was a well-negotiated deal. Uh, that was the only message I sent, and he totally ignored me on that. <laughs> and probably he should, probably he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been able to sell it to the Parliamentary Labour Party. That's really interesting, that, though, because obviously at the time, all the 
commentary was, this is terrible, it pisses off both sides. Now we're living in a world where we have a worse Brexit deal than the one that Theresa May spent a lot of time negotiating. Very hard not to conclude that you're right, and actually our economy and our society would be better off with the deal that she struck. And of course she tried, Theresa May, I mean... I'm not a huge fan of Theresa May, but she tried. Remember, she brought Jeremy Corbyn and Keir across to have a meeting to try and get a, a settlement there. And some of the bits that Labour didn't like, although they seem very strange now compared to what we've been saddled with, um, she was willing to iron out the rough edges. Uh, so it could have been a really good deal for the country. Because now, at the time, it was, let's not just leave Europe, let's leave the single market, let's leave the thing, the biggest commercial market in the world, bigger than China, bigger than America, let's just shoot ourselves in the foot economically and everything will be all right. Now, for us to concur with that, really because, and this was the trouble, this idea that we'll have a second referendum and everything will be all right. I mean, if we'd had a second referendum, it would have been more overwhelming than the first referendum. Anyone could sense that. Because as well as the people who wanted to leave, you'd have had the people who said, well, if you already had one referendum, yeah. what was, we call it the people's vote. Well, who voted the first time? Was that robots or something? You know, <laughs> it, was, it was a stupid stance to take. But I guess it was a pro- as someone who um, attended the old people's vote event. I, I guess <laughs> <laughs> what the people involved in that, good people, Alan, who yes. were involved in <laughs> yeah. that campaign. Uh, yeah. I disagreed with everyone on that. Tony Blair, Alistair Campbell, Peter Manderson, they all thought, you know, second vote. But obviously, Matt Ford. It was yeah, all these, <laughs> all the big all hits. These titans. Yeah. <laughs> it was a product, though, wasn't it, of a, of a constitutional gridlock? Was that no deal could get a majority on the floor of the House of Commons? So, how else did you unlock that? Obviously, the Tories wanted a general election because they wanted to defeat Jeremy Corbyn. What some people, with um, people like Tony Blair, had bit of experience of winning an election said was well why don't we have a referendum and then either that solves the problem without Labour facing wipeout effectively. It's just never going to happen was it and in the, in the end we got hit both ways in that election in 2019 we got hit because of Corbyn and we got hit because the people who had voted including in Hull it was a heavily heavily leave area heavily leave area on the basis that some people thought we'd get our fishing industry back Quite the opposite. The one trawler that ever goes out from Hull now has been tied up in port since we came out of Europe because they can't do a deal through Europe to fish in places like Newfoundland and Norway. So, so there was all of that going on. But you know that second who was going to who was going to organise a second referendum? The Tories weren't. We weren't going to win an election on the basis of we'd like you to have another vote on this, thank you very much. Uh, we took your first vote very seriously, so seriously, we're going to ask you to have a second vote. It just wasn't going to fly. So when you hear Keir Thomas say now there's no case to rejoin the EU, someone who led Labour's Remain campaign is still obviously very animated about the effects in places like other vote and leave. How does that make you feel? I think um, eventually this thing will become live again. I mean, there's a younger generation coming through can't see the sense of this at all and eventually I think we might reopen the issue but eventually it's a long long time away it's not going to happen I can't sense any groundswell you know of opinion that's going to that's going to change it the Theresa May's deal was a perfect deal for a 52-48 referendum result to get us through perhaps to a time when we're still part of the single market or let's take it a stage further now we've gone so far back I think Keir's just talking about real politique, you know. 
So actually, you, you, you agree with him that if the issue's not going to be reopened, what is the point in Labour losing yeah. votes? Because he knew what the Tories were going to, Tories were going to claim at the next election that we'd take us back, back into Europe. And it's still a toxic issue. You mentioned the 2019 election. You have many, many achievements in your long, glittering political career and your literary career and your broadcasting career. But when I think of Alan Johnson now, I think of you on election night, set next to John Lansman on ITV with George Osborne and Ed Balls looking on adoringly <laughs> as you sum up the feelings of millions of us about that election. I mean, you'd obviously known John Lansman a long time. Oh, yeah. He'd been around a long time. That moment where you denounce the cult, as you put it, and, and just so articulate, that great balance of being totally articulate but very passionate at the same time, very, very hard thing to do. It was do a bit of a rant, but it was sort of midnight or gone midnight. <laughs> and we'd had all these results coming in, and John came in this year with that awful shirt, by the way. I mean, that, <laughs> that offended me for a start. Where'd he pick that up? Primark or somewhere? <laughs> Um, like all these kind of middle class lefties, they try and dress down, you know. Um, anyway, he said, leaving <laughs> <laughs> that to one side. Um, anyway, he came in and amidst all the gloom and doom, he said, Looks like we're going to win Putney. <laughs> you know, I'm from Hull. We would have lost, I mean, we'd have lost the three Hull seats if it wasn't for stupid Farage putting up candidates. I mean, that's how bad things were. Mm. Hull's been. Uh, Hull's been Labour since God knows when. So all those <coughs> seats were, had been falling. And he comes in and said, it looks like we're going to win London South West 15. So I'm afraid I just couldn't restrain myself anymore. But, um, but I think we all felt that. And that was part of my feeling that momentum had now captured the party. Just like Militant tried to do but in the 80s. Militant never captured the castle. You know, they captured the castle and then worked down. They got the leadership and then worked down. Um, so so uh, that's, that's why my admiration for Keir Starmer. I don't want him to just be the Neil Kinnock, though, you know, who gets us back into a proper footing politically. Um, I want him to be a Tony Blair. Don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only everyone could be Tony Blair. <laughs> it's sounding like a bit of a cult of the personality here, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, He's yeah. a terrible guitarist, by the way. <laughs> Have you ever, oh, would you have played guitar with him? No, not the kind. All he done, all he no, a few chords from Foo Fighters songs. <laughs> oh, of all the bands? Yeah. I mean, I was part of two really good mod bands, the in-betweens in the area. All this jumping about at Oxford in loon pants, you know. I mean, you know, let's balance out our adoration of Tony Blair with a bit of realism for, for his music skills. Oh, I'm... I'm I'm open-minded. I'm, I'm willing to give him a 9 out of 10 in some areas. You know, yeah. I, I'm happy to mark him down. Um, so the bands you were in, would it be fair to describe them as mod bands? Yeah. So what was your sound like? The Small Faces, that sort of thing? The jam? Small Faces uh, we liked. There was a band called The Action, who were a really big mod band. Never made it, but we used to follow them all around West London. Um, uh, yeah, Small Faces. We, had this, we were going to go on tour with them, and then we had all our gear nicked. Uh, we were very much a kind of Faces... Who high numbers before that uh, kind of band, and then the in betweens was different. The in betweens much more. They had a manager and really professional, and they and they were multiracial, which in 1967 was unheard of, you know. Uh, with a lovely singer called Carmen, who was half Indian and half Colombian. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we've got any water here? Yeah, she's. Uh, 
We've got a surprise for you, Alan, because she's yeah. here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, you haven't seen a rock concert unless you saw Carmen. Uh, I used to be the backup vocalist, but for Wild Thing by the Trogs, I used to step forward and do the vocal, and she used to dance around me. Wild Thing. <laughs> da -dang -dang. She had a dawner. Well, uh, yeah. And I was also a great songwriter, by the way. I wrote the B-side of that. So I made a record when I was 16 in um, Regent Sound in Denmark Street. The Yardbirds were in the week before. Um, uh, and, and I was a really great songwriter. And my, in my life, music memoir available at all good bookshops. Uh, <laughs> I, that, I was convinced I was going to be a rock star. And then when I kind of got into my late 20s, I thought, well, I'm going to be a songwriter. And just to give this wonderful audience a, just a glimpse into my, to my genius, <laughs> I was a great songwriter, and I, I sat down when I was about 32, acoustic guitar, um, compact audio cassettes, which hadn't been out for long, you know, where you can record yourself on a sound system, and I did six of my songs, and I sent them to Elvis Costello, who I loved then and love now, got his address off the back of uh, Imperial Bedroom, his album, sent it off to him, and as I say in the book, I'm still waiting for a reply. <laughs> but one of those songs I wrote when I was 18, was about a lad with acne. I've got acne, I've got eczema, I've got every skin disease, gives me pimples I can pick, gives me blackheads I can squeeze. Now that, <laughs> I, well, I think you'll agree, that's Dylan-esque. <laughs> but the genius was in the middle eight. How can any girl want to be with you when every kiss she gets just tastes of Nivea? <laughs> and Elvis Costello had the chance to, you know, sign me up and failed dismally. Bad skin, it was called. Well, as a lifelong eczema sufferer, <laughs> oh, genuinely, I've, I've still oh, really? got oh, sorry about hands, that. But yeah. it, 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 that's the song that I could have. See, yeah. That means a lot. That really resonates. See, I've dropped, a, I've dropped a proverbial there, haven't I? In, these, in this day and age, you've got to watch that thing because. You know, that's probably why Elvis turned it down, Costello, because he thought I'd just offend people with yeah. acne. <laughs> so why was that, when you were, did you have a muse? Did you have a friend who had acne and eczema, or was this a condition that affected you and you were... No, 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 I always had beautiful, beautiful skin, very soft. Um, no, it just came to me one day when I was driving a post office van. That line came to me, and then I thought, I've got to build a song around it. I mean, obviously, you've got to be careful being a trade unionist singing about scabs because that's yeah. going to really turn them against you. Um, so, just to go back to the landsman thing, because I, obviously, one of the things that you made you such a formidable opponent of the hard left was your authentically working class credentials. And you were a kind of very awkward opponent for them because. While they talk about the working class, a lot of them actually aren't. And yet here you are as a, a working class person who was a new Labour and was part of that government and was a very talented part of it. Off camera, when you're talking to Landsman, would you ever talk about things like class with him? I wouldn't utter a word to him that night at all. We walked out together and he was kind of smiling and wanting to conversation. I was really, really furious that night. Really furious. Talking to him before, well, he was part of the Benite left, and I had a kind of good relationship with Tony Benn because he was postmaster general when I became a postman, and he spent a lot of time talking to me because he had this thing. You know, he, he he lived and breathed his time as postmaster general, still well into his 
quite old age, you know. So when I came into Parliament, he was very, very friendly, chatting about post office stuff and all that. And Lansman was always part of his of his clique. I liked Tony Ban. Um, I can't say I like John Lansman, but but there again, this you must have had this. I mean, you were the product of a single mother from a working class background. When you get these people coming to you, you know, like so when. So we were on strike in the post office workers' union when I was 20. We went on a seven-week-long strike, all out, no pay. I had three kids, by the way. My, my youngest child had just been born, living on a council estate in Slough. And we'd come down to London for these rallies. And we'd dress up a bit because we were representing the union. And there'd be these swarms of kind of kids. With, we, were, we were poor and trying to look smart. You know, this is the, this is the mod cult. You might be poor, but don't show poor. Yeah, the clean living in difficult circumstances. It was Peter um, Meehan, was it? The manager of The Who. Yeah, clean living in difficult circumstances. That was the thing about being a mod. And there were these guys the opposite way round. You know, they were quite posh and profitable, but trying to look like a sack of spuds. Um, and badges, every opinion you could possibly have was on a badge stuck to a denim jacket. And uh, they came, man. Like we were heroes because we were on strike. Hey, gotta extend the strike, you know. Says a, you know, eighteen-year-old economic student from the LSE. <laughs> I've got three kids, a wife and three kids. Gotta extend the strike. Gotta extend. No, we've got to try and settle it. Actually, you know, negotiate a settlement. No, man. International socialists. It was in those days, not the SWP. Forerunners of the swappies. And so all of that kind of crap was part of my political. Uh, education, but I was also fortunate enough to read George Orwell when I was 14, Animal Farm, and our teacher, wonderful teacher, who I dedicate my first work of fiction. I used to say at these literary uh, events, I'm, I want to write fiction, to which a few cynics would say, why don't you write your next party manifesto? <laughs> be a cynical view of politics. But anyway, my first uh, work of fiction, Late Train to Gypsy Hill, out in paperback now, and um, I dedicate it to this teacher, Peter Carlin. And Peter Carlin, we've all got a great teacher in our life, haven't we? most people. I was 14, I left school at 15, just after my 15th birthday. And so it was, I was a year with Peter Carlin, but he had such an effect on me. Be he got all us boys reading Animal Farm, and you know, passing it between our hinge-lidded desks to read a page, and which is a lovely story, Animal Farm. He explained the subtext of the Bolshevik Revolution. And Peter Carlin explained the subtext. And I was an Orwell fan. I then read 1984. I read Keep the Aspidistra Flying. I read Road to Wigan Pier. When I was very young, and Orwell, of course, was a democratic socialist. And one of the reasons I never went to the far left, many people have this stuff saying, oh, you were a member of the Communist Party. No, I wasn't. I was a member of any party except the Labour Party. Uh, but I could have been tempted down that route. You know, the idea of a worker's state was quite good when you're kind of living in the conditions I was in. Orwell, you know, beware of totalitarianism from the left and the right. Attlee was saying it in the 1930s. It's not capitalism versus socialism anymore. It's totalitarian regimes against non-totalitarian regimes. So I had that bit of a political education, even though I left school. At 15. And Mr. Carlin used to take us to the theatre, some of us boys, first time ever, at his own expense. He got me reading Dickens, Arnold Bennett, C.S. Forrester. He saw that I was a voracious reader. I said, why have you ever read these books, Alan? And he saw that I wrote these silly detective stories. 
and said, have you ever thought of sending them off to be published? And he got an old dog-eared copy of the Writers and the Artists Yearbook, which is still out even in the internet age, where it's got the address of every magazine, no matter how um, uh, sort of small it is, I'd send off my poems and my, uh, not bad skin, I hadn't written that yet, <laughs> but, um, and my stories about Inspector Andrews and this character, Mr. Midnight, get the inevitable rejection slips. I was only 14. Mr. Carney said, Alan, every great writer could paper their walls with rejection slips. <laughs> Don't give up on writing fiction. And so 57 years later, I dedicated the book to him. But the thing is, he's still alive. He's 90 years of age. And he was such an important person in my life, he doesn't remember a single bloody thing about me. <laughs> but he kind of says he does in the way, you know, that politicians. So I still live in the area I used to represent in Hull, Western Hazel. I go around Sainsbury's in Hazel. And someone will come to me and say, oh, Mr. Johnson, it's always Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson, remember I came to your surgery in 2002 about my drains? <laughs> and it'd be cruel if you said, no, of course I don't. So you say, oh, yeah. And Mr. Carlin had that, oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> he didn't. He, he became a head teacher. He's had thousands of kids go past him. But anyway, he was there to mark my homework at 90 years of age. So he's a, a great man, is Peter Carlin. That is so cool, because I just presumed... You wouldn't have been around, given how long it had been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. so cool that you got to dedicate to him and you got to read it. And what did he make of it? I don't think he liked it at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, his kids came to the book launch that you, you couldn't make it, I know, but he, his kids came. He was too frail to get down from Bath where he lives. But he sent me a little... His son did a video and sent it to me and he's raising a glass to me, Mr Carlin. And, you know, as soon as I heard his voice, I kind of sat up. <laughs> Because um, he had such a mellifluous voice and was such a... He, I mean, it was the days of corporal punishment. Mr. Carlin didn't need the cane. He had a natural authority. Um, but his daughters came and uh, they told me he really liked the book. So I'll take their... He's not actually said it himself. <laughs> he probably sent me the homework back, you know, four out of ten. Uh, <laughs> see me. Yeah, come and see me. <laughs> so now you're a fiction writer. I mean, obviously you've written various memoirs, different books about music and the effects on your life. Was fiction always the way it was going to end, do you think? You were always going to end up writing stories? Because it it's a very different discipline. Yes, very different. But, you know, I would never have... No one would have been interested in my memoirs if I hadn't been a politician. So lots of people have great stories to tell, uh, but it's very difficult to get published. Having been published with the memoirs, and they did very well and won lots of prizes and stuff, my Penguin Random House would have had me churning out memoirs for the rest of my life, but, you know, I, I was sick of writing about myself, and I really wanted to get to fiction. So I just wrote Late Train to Gypsy Hill, and then my agent went, and we got a, a deal with Wildfire for a two-book deal. So I always wanted to get there, but it was always the kind of Mount Everest. Can, you know, with memoirs, you know the plot. Yeah. You know the characters. Uh, and I knew it was a kind of interesting because basically a story of my mum and my sister, uh, this boy, that, that was the first one. Um, but with fiction, you're doing it all. You, you, one sense, you have the freedom to go wherever you want to go. And after politics, where you've got no control over events, you know, Harold Macmillan, when someone said to him in the late 50s, What's your biggest fear, Prime Minister? He said, Events, dear boy, events. You know, nobody knew COVID was coming down a track. Nobody knew you know, Trump in America or whatever. All these things happen. 
and you have to react to them. Same in the trade union world. Now I don't need special advisors. I don't need ministerial team. I don't need anyone. It's just me and that, and that page. Uh, so you can make it go wherever you want to, wherever you want to go. But do you miss politics? Not at all, no. no, no. Like, there must be a part of you, like the dog of war that misses the adrenaline of like winning elections, beating the Tories. You're strange. I've read your book, which is very good, by the way, but you're one of those strange individuals who get... I mean, we really need them in political parties. You loved going out and organising a by-election. Oh, absolutely. Even though you were useless at them and we lost every seat you ever organised. Um, you loved all that. I really, that's the bit I miss, is See, like the constant yeah, war. I, I never liked... <laughs> I never, I never liked that. Um, that's why I'd been a lousy prime minister, by the way. Yeah. I never liked, you know, the kind of vote for me, you know, knocking on doors saying, "Vote for me." I'm really. Oh yeah, really I don't think I've ever been. I would never have stood as a candidate, but I enjoyed being part of the machine. The organising, yeah. Yeah, it was getting someone else elected. Yeah. yeah. Just the incremental thing of like yeah. the dividing line, even just within yeah. the party. Yeah, well. but you did most of that when we were in government. Oh, yeah. And that was fun. Being in government was really oh, was fun. Great. All the ministerial jobs were fun. Yeah. Look at his eyes. Light, it, light up. But it was. You know what's yeah. mad is? It's yeah. like, obviously, Forrester just got promoted to the Premier League. You're like, I shouldn't have, you had, I shouldn't have to, like, had to wait a long Do you support Nottingham Forest? <laughs> <laughs> but the only reason I've been living in the past is there was nothing going on in the present for me. Like, if, if we'd have stayed in the Premier League, it would have been different. But it's the same with Labour in government. Is that, that is actually a rare thing. And it was an amazing thing, even a very, very small thing. And I was only working with them right towards yeah. the end. Yeah. That was one of the most exciting things I will ever do in my life. Oh, me too, yeah. Me it too. was, and it's, it's pathetic that it's rare and that another generation of people haven't had that chance. But think people like Keir Starmer and others, you know, are willing to go through the hard yards in opposition to get back into yeah. power. I've got nothing but admiration for them. I, I came in in 97 in a landslide. I mean, they talk about Boris Johnson having a landslide. Yeah. An 80-seat majority, 179-seat majority we had. We were crammed in there. I mean, they, a true story this, David Blunkett on that first day when, you know, there were 425 of us, a little rump of sad Tories over there <laughs> uh, for the first PMQs. David Blunkett came in with his guide dog, Lucy. Lucy led David to the opposition front bench. <laughs> There's a, uh, yeah, that, that shows what 18 years in opposition does for you. Um, the guy, Simon uh, Hoggart in The Guardian said, in any civilized society, that have allowed Lucy in early to pee on the government bench <laughs> so she could find her way there. But what a metaphor for, for years in opposition. And I had all that wonderful 13 years, 11 years as a minister. After that, it was pretty, you know, pretty depressing. It was, but that period in government, I mean, you were definitely one of the most popular politicians in the country for a while. D did you realise that? Not really, no. Well, that must be why I've failed to win deputy leadership <laughs> when I stood for it, yeah. No, I think there's... What people like... You were talking in your monologue before about backstories. I had a lot of backstory, and people liked my backstory up against... Cameron, the old Etonian, and they didn't like that. But at the chances when they could have elected me as a leader, they very sensibly didn't, or even as deputy leader. You know, there was no one that was going to beat Gordon Brown after Tony stepped down. And then after that, I was part of David Miliband's campaign. It was much better for him to become leader than me. So, so no, and, you know, greatest leader 
we never had, as a few people say, you mainly, uh, <laughs> is better than what a bloody useless load of tosh he was, you know? Because <laughs> so you can never disprove that, can you? Greatest leader we never That's a very good had. point. So your deputy leadership campaign then, was your heart really in it? No, not at all. Why not? Because it was all about organisation. I was the education secretary, and the job, thank God Harriet got it. I mean, I said I was the best man for the job, but as so often in life, there's a better woman. <laughs> um, and that's probably the highlight of my campaign, was just after I lost. Um, you know, if I'd have won that, I'd have had a life of dealing with people like you, East Midlands organisers <laughs> and, and party members, because that's really what the deputy yes. leader does. Yes. Whereas Gordon made me health secretary for two years and then made me home secretary. I wouldn't have missed that for the world. I wouldn't have been able to do that and be deputy leader. I don't think so. So, no, it was a, it was a blessed release. So then why did you stand? I had this thing about, because John Prescott was East Hull and I was West Hull. I thought it'd be quite, <laughs> I don't know, it <laughs> be quite good to pass the deputy leadership across <laughs> the, uh, the River Hull uh, to the West. Yeah, basically that was it. <laughs> and a lot of people telling me, if you go for deputy leader, you'll be in pole position for like leader. Yeah. And I thought, mm, I don't particularly want to be leader, but they're not asking me to, leader, to be leader, they're asking me to be deputy leader. So yeah, it was quite exciting as well. Because obviously there are quite a lot of us that wanted you to win that competition. Mm. So then should I have voted for Hillary Benn instead or? Yeah, or Peter Hayne or anyone. Hazel, Hazel Blair. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, did you vote for me? You're telling me this now. Yeah. Oh, oh. And it went right down. Poor you know what? I was stroll. in the room. I was working for the party because it was on the yeah. same day that Gordon officially became leader. So we're in the Bridgewater Hall in Manchester. Yeah. And they announced the deputy leadership election results first. And then we were told Tony's not going to be there. Tony Blair comes out and was like, oh, I'm gone. And here's uh, <laughs> this amazing speech there. And you know, Gordon will be the best. What's some line about. Um, and I know that his best is the best there is. <laughs> and then the whole thing became a union jack. Yeah, yeah. And they walk on from either side, Tony yeah, Gordon, yeah. they meet right under the middle bit. And I'm like, fuck. Yeah, yeah. So just before that, they do the deputy leadership results. And it's like, literally goes to the final round. But it's so close that literally yeah. the, the bar chart is like, you actually couldn't tell who'd won. Well, we were all locked away and we knew what the result was. Yeah. But I said to my spads, who worked really hard on, on the campaign, I said, look, if I... I wasn't very good on text messages, but I said, if I text you an N, it means no. And a Y <laughs> means I've got it. And I had my acceptance speech already. So I texted the N. And so my spads, the three of them, including Claire Montague, you may know, is yes. a wonderful woman, but with a very loud voice. But they were sitting behind oh, yeah, me, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they didn't know who had one. They just knew I hadn't. So as it went through, and coming to the last go, Claire said, and this was a video clip, went viral, Oh, fuck, it's Harriet! <laughs> Such a good clip, that. You can find it on YouTube. You know what? Actually, I've just remembered this. I had a very small part in that. I had to go to. The results were counted in Leicester. And it was an electronic result. And because I was an East Midlands organiser, I was effectively at the camp. I had to wait downstairs. So Peter Watt, who was the General Secretary, yeah. and Roy Kennedy, who was yeah. uh, Finance Secretary at the time, they were upstairs. But I was just there, because it, like, it was in the East Midlands, with Roger Baker, who was then head of media. It went on for ages. Yeah. And yeah. ages. So we were like, is there a problem up there? Yeah. What the f 
So I'm not saying there was a problem. I'm not saying there was any foul play. All I'm saying is it took longer than I thought. Yeah. You never get this level of interrogation with Andrew Neil, by the way. This is, uh, <laughs> we ought to have the charts up there, you know, which round uh, Peter Hayne dropped out in. Well, I asked because I sensed that your heart wasn't in it, even though I desperately wanted you to win it. Oh, and I really so wanted pleased, you to yeah. be leader of the Labour Party at some point. I think we could collectively feel. I mean, it's actually remarkable you got to the final round having basically not campaigned. No. No, and it's also why I'd have made a dreadful leader, because you've got to want to do a job like that. It's one of the reasons why Jeremy Corbyn w wasn't a very good leader. He didn't really want to be. It was his turn from the campaign group to stand. Nobody thought he was going to win. And then suddenly he found himself bloody leader of the party, you know. And if you don't want to do it, you know, but people you, would, you won't do it very well. But this is what I struggle to believe, is that someone who'd been... Health Secretary, Home Secretary, one of the most prominent and talented, charismatic politicians in that cabinet then didn't want to just take that extra step further. You must be the only person in the history of cabinet government that didn't want the top job. <laughs> there, was, well, there was an American commentator, didn't there, who said that anyone who wants to be President of the United States ought to be debarred on the basis that <laughs> they must be mad to want to do the job. And there is that element. You've got to have a very special kind of thing. Thank God there are people who want to do it. Tony, and I put Keir in that situation as well. For, to, you know, that's why you know, I'm not fit to stand in their shadow because they, they really want to do it and they're planning how to do it and they're willing to go through the heartache and the hard work to do it. Um, and the same applies, you know, for Haig uh, to stand as leader in 97. Probably messed him up, uh, his political career, because if he'd come in later, he might, have, he might have been more successful. But then he did end up being Foreign Secretary and being very well All respected. I'm trying to do is give you a chance to do your William <laughs> impersonation. Well, <laughs> Alan is typically kind. <laughs> the truth, of course, is that... <laughs> Had I stood in 2001 or even 2005, <laughs> by then the party had moved on, I believe, and I would have campaigned, by the way, for David Cameron. You know, it was only, um, thank you for that. It was only <laughs> when I interviewed him years ago on here, it was only when I met him, I realised he does a little hum in between each word. In a <laughs> word. And I'd always done him as very histrionic, but actually the face barely moves. Yeah. <laughs> barely moves at all. And you're like, wow, he's basically like making these amazing noises, but with a really flat mouth. Can you imagine being at school with him and a rather uncomprehensive, you know, William, and reading Hansard every night? I mean, it's, it just uh, fascinates me, William Hague. Really fascinates I really me. identify with that. I. I Oh, right. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, thinking of the two current candidates for Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, from a Labour point of view, who do you think is the easier to beat? Um, I think they're much... I mean, if Sunak gets it, there's going to be a lot of internal problems in the Tory party, because, um, well, I mean, if, if he wins it, it'll come from well behind. Um, but... You know, he's not going to give the far right what they want. He's going to have people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nadine Doris. I'll give you a chance to do her in a minute as well, because you do her very well, um, uh, on his back. Uh, if Liz gets it, I don't Liz. And she was very good, by the way. She, when she was Agriculture Minister, I had something to do with her over constituency stuff, and I was impressed by her. Um, 
But I don't, I really don't think she's up to it. I really don't think she's experienced enough yet to do that job. But, I mean, this is something people always say. When they deal with it, they're very impressed with that. And, and she's obviously consistently underestimated. Yeah, true. Um, which is obviously a, a huge risk for any opponent. There does seem to be people going, well, this is great for Keir Stone, River wins, you know. And th- there's a risk in that as well. Um, but do you think that either one of them is an easier opponent for him than Boris Johnson was? Um, no, no. I think because, I mean, because Boris Johnson had shot his bolt you know, big time. And I think uh, it's also, by the way, a bit of a, if Liz Truss gets it, a bit of Tories on their third woman leader and Labour, who were formed the first political party in the country to actually fight for emancipation, not had a single woman leader. Uh, So I think that would be quite embarrassing for us as well. I mean, looking at the Tory leadership contest, it has been diverse in terms of gender and ethnicity in a way that Again, you know, Labour, previous Labour competitions haven't been. Why do you think the Tories are better at that sort of thing, perhaps on the surface of it, than than Labour are? I don't know. Cameron did something when he was there about rooting out, you know, the... The Colonels and the Shires. Yeah, and the fact that if you wanted to be a candidate, you you had to introduce your wife. You know, there's very few women uh, in those days. Introduce your wife, make sure she was okay at the Garden Fete. He kind of did a lot of work on getting rid of, rid of that, and we're seeing the fruit of it now in terms of diversity. Diversity of, I mean, look, I'm, I'm as appalled, and the last 12 years have been awful. You know, we're going through a situation now where, where they almost disown George Osborne as if he was from a different political party, and yet that age of austerity, you know, the news today about health service workers, well, they had a 1% cap. And then a nil percent, you remember in the age of austerity, to kind of get the, the, the deficit down, failed on every single target and left us with this terrible uh, legacy. So, so, you know, I'm not impressed by any of their positions. I just think Sunak looks like the grown-up in the room. He looks like he's willing to face down people who are saying, cut taxes now and just cut public services and everything will be okay. If you were, um, and having run a, a, a form of leadership campaign and, and not been successful, um, would, what advice would you give Rishi Sunak as someone who has not finished first? Would you say, actually, maybe you should change tack and you're talking to Tory members, not the country, you sh- maybe should adjust your position on tax? No, don't be the kiss of death. It's kiss of death. I mean, he'll be saying what he's been saying when the time is right, you know, we'll cut taxes. I mean, he can't, he daren't move off of that. Well, they'll be into the debate now. Oh, the, yeah. Oh, what? sorry, mate, we've got to get 40 off. minutes in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we might have a telly. <laughs> Could have shown it on a big screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Maybe another time. Yeah. I think we The next look- leadership uh, debate. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. in about three days' time. Um, so, um, let's open up the um, auditorium to questions for Alan. If we have clear indications, please, and if we can ask for one-sentence questions, one-sentence answers. Yes, right at the front. As a former Home Secretary, what's your policy on uh, alcohol for under 18s? What's, as a former Home Secretary, what's your policy on alcohol for under 18s? Uh, there's, there's a point to this. Oh, okay, um, there's a point to this. As, <laughs> as, health, <laughs> as health Secretary, I'm not Home Secretary, as Health Secretary, I asked my Chief Medical Officer, Liam Donaldson, great man, to do a, a, a thing for me on what the law said about 
drinking alcohol because our law was all over the place. You could drink under 14 in some cases, you could drink under 18 and to harmonise it and all the advice from our health people were was if you give alcohol to kids, you know, this idea that in France, oh, in France, all the French drink red wine, and a nice glass of Merlot when they're about nine years of age doesn't the world are good. No, it doesn't. It hurts their livers, and it will hurt their development. So I was a no alcohol for anyone under 18, which is a good job that wasn't the law when I was a kid. Hmm? You bought me my first drink at 16. Oh, my no. God. No. You bought him his first drink at 16. Who, who was 16? What was I? Oh, you were Oh, really? But, um, we had a seminar with you. We were, I was a postdoc at the time. Right. And uh, afterwards, or later on that evening, I don't think you quite realise I'm, I'm six foot four and quite a uh, butch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you invited me to the pub. Got me a drink. So this was yeah. what? In the CWU, the communication yeah, workers? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's CWU. move on, shall we? Is there anybody <laughs> else here with a. <laughs> so, I think we should stay on the fact that you used to get young boys drunk, Alan. What was going on? <laughs> Why did you leave the postal union and just sit there? Can you remember what the question. drink was? And a leading question. Pint, Pint of beer. Just been a Foster's. Pint of Foster's. Uh, and was that your first ever drink? Uh, in a pub, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in a pub. my strategy. <laughs> he was supporting me at every election after that. <laughs> wow. Okay, uh, another question from Yes, right there. What can the trade unions do to positively influence Labour's election campaign? Oh, stop whinging and moaning and, uh, you know, about Labour until two weeks before the election when you tell all your members to vote Labour. Uh, you know, be like the Swedish unions and the Dutch unions and the uh, German unions. Have a glass of wine at nine years old. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, have a constructive relationship. Not all this, oh, you know... I think the union's doing a great job at the moment, by the way. Um, you know... The longest squeeze on wages since the Napoleonic Wars. The wonder is is the is not the militancy; it's the moderation. After all that, with inflation running at eleven percent, I think Mick Lynch has been a lugubrious uh, champion uh, over the rail the, the rail dispute. Um, so so um, you know they they all know. You'll get me ranting in a minute. You know when we were in government. We introduced the national minimum wage. We introduced the right to representation, whether you're a member of a union or not, any grievance or discipline procedure, you just called the trade union in. We gave the right to union recognition if you just recruit 50% plus one. We gave the, you know, maternity leave went up from 14 weeks to nine months. Paternity leave introduced for the first time. A list of employment rights as long, more than any other government has ever into part-time workers, all of that. And yet, you know, you've got people then trading and say, oh, it's just the same as having a Tory government. Now, perhaps, they realise that there is quite a difference uh, 12 years on. So, you know, just recognise that. You don't have to, you don't even have to be affiliated. I'm an affiliated union, but, you know, just make sure that you're not damaging Labour's chances of getting into power. But you're a former General Secretary of a Trade Union. When you see Mick Lynch who's been a star these last few weeks, whatever you think of how left-wing his politics are, his stance on Brexit, is there a part of you that, does he stir that trade unionist within? No, no. I'm always a trade, I'm a trade unionist. There's more trade unionists like me. There's very few trade unionists, you know, like the finger jabbers. They were a minority. The Scargills, if you like, they're a minority. Most trade unions, today, you know, there'll be a 2,000 times when a trade union has done something constructive to help their company, whether it's British Aerospace or whether it's Siemens or whatever. I mean, I am a trade unionist through and through. 
Um, so I, but the way Mick Lynch has dealt with himself, you know, as I say, not a finger jabber, quiet, lugubrious is the word I would use, he's wiped the floor with Kate Burley, Piers Morgan, you know, whoever he's been put up against. Chris because Fitch. he's making a really, yeah, a really, a really concrete argument. What a trade union is there for if their members are being asked to take a 7% pay cut, basically. Um, so, so, no, I think he's done a great job. Okay, any more questions for... Uh, I'll, uh, it's all is it all member with the hand in the air? I've sort of having obviously a conversation about the Labour Party and quotas. Uh, uh, sort of like... Okay, the man at the back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, so this gentleman was at the last ever recording of this week. How much do you miss it? And that was wonderful. That was over in Central Hall in Westminster, and we had uh, tickets for people to come and see it. Generally, they didn't, you know, there wasn't an audience. People came from uh, all over. I mean, I can't think, I mean, I'm not going to make anything up like they came from, you know, south of France, although some probably did. But there were people there who travelled over from Belfast. Putney. Coming down Putney, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hull. Uh, <laughs> it was a wonderful occasion because we realised how loved we were um, and it was a great, cheap little programme, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it had 16% of everyone watching television at that time of night, sort of 20 to 12, all the sports channels, all the film channels, 16% of the whole television audience were watching our little modest programme. 84% won. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but that yeah. is a lot, you know, given yeah. the amount of channels, absolutely. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Just because you weren't invited on. <laughs> Portillo, yeah, yeah. Great question. So you keep in touch with Portillo, Andrew Neil? Andrew Neil, yeah, we, we, we stay in touch. Not, not Diana? Uh, no, Diana was, wasn't on with me. I replaced Diana when she took a front bench role because you weren't allowed to be on it if you had a, any kind of political responsibility, uh, if you were a front bencher. Um, but no, I would have, Diana was there at the party that we had afterwards as well. And it's just a stupid decision by the BBC. Yes. Really what but do you have any reunions? Do you ever get together? Uh, yeah, I was with, yeah, occasionally, yeah. I'm not wanting to go any further into that. We'll li okay, draw a veil, a just like the then. drinking with the postal cadets. So what, why don't you want to elaborate on it? Is it because of where you meet, or...? Um, because private conversations uh, have to remain private. So the people who get together, you, Michael, and Andrew Neil? Uh, I get together with Andrew Neil sometimes, and sometimes I get together with Michael Portillo. Okay, but they never get together with each other? Uh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's just diaries, isn't it? You know. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, okay, um, one last question. Um, yes, right at the back. Thank you. Would you like to see the Labour leadership more vociferous in support of railway workers? Would you like to see the railway leadership? I think the Labour leadership you're talking about Keir Starmer, because, I mean, West Streeting, uh, the Shadow Transport, so, I mean, they've been very, very supportive. Uh, Keir's got to be careful. It's always, you know, that's the terrible role that he's got as leader of the opposition. Because it was all right that first couple of days, but when it goes on, there'll be more people disrupted and a bit grumpy about what's going on. And hearing the person who is asking them to make them prime minister saying what I just said, I think, it's, you know, I can say it. Uh, they've got to be a bit restrained. A bit restrained. He's not, you know, he's... he's Keir's line is, look, they ought to get a negotiated settlement here, as I'm sure they will, by the way. 
Um, so I don't think you know, there's ever been any Labour leader who steps into that kind of minefield of taking the side in an industrial dispute of the unions because they're bound to get the, oh, you know, you're not, uh, you, you, you care more. You're just in the union's grip. I mean, RMT are not even affiliated to the, to the union, but that's kind of the, the, to the Labour Party. But as they are, and they're involved in these disputes as well. No, but I think beyond that, there is an awful lot of support. And I thought the glory of Mick Lynch is that actually the public were on the side of the railway workers. And I think they still are. And the reason for that is because the public have been through years of all this, zero hours contracts and driving down pay and holding pay down. And they're glad to see someone standing up and sort of getting something out of it. And the idea that you can criticise them because they get a decent wage. Oh, this trade union is terrible because their members get good wages. Well, that's why they're a popular trade union. So yeah. I'll do it for Kia, all right? I'll support them for Kia. But <laughs> Would you go to stand on the picket line again? Uh, yeah, if I, <laughs> if I had to. <laughs> something I wake up every morning excited to go and do. Um, but yeah, I, we, ran, we had more disputes in Royal Mail than anyone, even railway workers. I mean, because we, we had members in every kind of village, every town, and I was always going out resolving disputes. And when we had picket lines, we had picket lines for a reason, a practical reason about, you know, the members that were going to go in to just reason with them and say, look, can you stay united with us? It wasn't to kind of virtue signal, come on our picket line and show us how much you care about us. It was for very practical reasons. And did you ever resort to intimidation or violent conduct? Quite often, particularly with postal cadets who <laughs> revealed that I'd given them their first drink. You know, <laughs> that was... Um, Oh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, before we let the wonderful Alan Johnson go, please a round of applause for everyone here at the Duchess Theatre. Now, Avalon, you made tonight possible. Thank you. Thank yourselves you. for being such a wonderful crowd. Thank uh, you. Do come back for the autumn winter shows. More guests to be announced, but for now, proving once again the greatest Prime Minister. <laughs> we never, would you ever, do you think, is there, but just to maybe tantalise, would you ever go back into the House of Commons? Would you ever go back? Would you ever go and leave them? I'm a writer and former politician. So, no. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that, Matt. That's not fine. even for you. Okay. Oh. You're a writer and former comedian. Oh! <laughs> you bitch. Oh, oh that really hurt. Um, well, for the last time, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the amazing Alan Johnson. Thank you. Well, there you go, Alan Johnson. I'm so pleased that his old teacher is still alive and he will have a new piece of work to mark uh, because Alan does have a new novel coming out later this year, which is very exciting. Um, and if you haven't read his memoirs, particularly this boy, the first one, you have to. And I will be amazed if you can read it without crying. It is incredibly moving, um, as you would imagine, from someone with the, the heart and soul of Alan. But... Oh, my word. I mean, he really is one of the greatest talents of the last Labour government. And it's just, where's it so lightly? It's just such easy company. Not that you would ever forget um, the officers that he held and not that he would ever define himself by it. But what a special personality. And whenever people get cynical about politics and whenever people say, oh, they're all the same or whatever. And of course, I think every episode of this podcast serves as an encyclopedia, as a back catalogue of how politicians aren't the same and how they're all different and how they all have strengths. But Alan Johnson, 
is one of those people that whenever people say, oh, politicians are a particular type of people, Alan Johnson is clearly the exception to that. And I believe I don't believe that politicians are all the same, obviously. I mean, I'll point in the shows that I don't think that. But my word, isn't he completely different to that stereotype that people think of when they talk politics down? So what an amazing guy. And um, what a privilege to spend time with him. So thank you for downloading this. Please do leave a review. It really does help. I know I always ask, but just do it, please. And um, share it, spread the word, tell everyone about it. I'll see you at the Edinburgh Festival for three incredible shows. Gordon Brown, Anna Sawar, Joanna Cherry. I'll be back at the Duchess in the autumn for some phenomenal guests, including Mick Lynch, Matt Hancock and Rachel Reeves. And I'll see you soon. ta 